Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com slash AMA. This perceived value of what learning businesses provide and the role that learning businesses provide in society, that value has never been higher. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Happy birthday, Jeff. Happy birthday, Salisa. Though I guess we should really be saying happy birthday to Goris, since it's Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, that turned 15 years old about a month ago. Yes, hard to believe, Jeff, but you and I started Tagoras in May of 2007. If you've been listening to the Leading Learning podcast for a while, you know that we're big fans of the power of reflection. And when we hit a milestone, and I think 15 years definitely qualifies as a milestone, we tend to use the milestone as an opportunity to reflect. Yeah, I would say it is definitely a milestone and it has been a a long journey. And that's why we're devoting this episode, episode 309, to 15 changes in the learning business landscape. Yeah. So what we want to do is share some of what we realized when we looked back over the 15 years that we've been in business as Tagoras. A lot of the seeds that were planted around or not long after the turn of the century really grew and blossomed over that last decade and a half. And so there have been some really fundamental changes to the learning business landscape. That's what we want to talk about today. This is not a particularly scientific or heavily data-driven analysis of changes. It really is just us looking back and seeing what are some of the biggest changes that jump out as us as we look over the 15 years since Tagoras got its start. Yeah, and it could probably easily be, you know, 25 changes. I've already come up with others since we started thinking about this. But these are the 15 that really first jumped out and and really have had just a significant impact out there. And so I'll I'll start out uh, with number one on our list. And these aren't in any particular order, but this was a big one. This has been a huge one. And that is the surge of video And I can vaguely remember uh, back in 2006, about a year and a half after YouTube was founded, Google acquired it for $1.65 billion. And a lot of people, myself, were kind of scratching our heads saying, huh, that just seems like an awful lot of money for an awfully young company that hasn't proven a way to make money yet. But we should have all known that something big was afoot. And it would be really hard to exaggerate the impact that the proliferation of digital video has had since that time. And a lot of people probably don't know it, but part of our pre-Tagoras experience was with a company called University Access, which later became Quizic. And that was a startup that uh, was built on um, capturing the video of top business school professors 
and then attempting to distribute that uh, across the internet, which may sound awfully familiar <laughs> based on some things that are going on right now. And that was in the mid-1990s, though, and that entire proposition was really costly, really uh, time-consuming. It meant actually putting like video crews on airplanes, flying them to different parts of the country. Yeah, heavy, heavy equipment just to capture this stuff, just to film it, you know, and then actually digitizing it and getting it out to the world. I mean, the entire proposition was really costly, really time-consuming, um, not surprising that that company burned through all its cash and was one of the uh, the dot-com casualties. We were, to put it mildly, uh, a good bit ahead of our time. These days, of course, most of us carry around a high-quality video camera as part of our smartphones and uploading the video that uh, we capture into a distribution network, whether that's YouTube or Vimeo or one of the major social networks or something else entirely, is just a breeze. And as a result, roughly 500 hours of video content were uploaded to YouTube alone every minute in 2020. And so if we think about the impact that that surge of video has on the learning business landscape, I mean, a couple of things jump out. First, there's just been this huge drop in the cost and the efforts that you have to go through to capture video, to use it to deliver educational content. And so that means that it's become so much easier for folks to create video content, to use that as part of educational experiences. And I would say too, that the surge of video really has been a big catalyst for micro learning, which often is video based. Yeah, usually when you talk about micro learning, people have in mind those short, you know, five to 10 minute videos and making those, publishing those, distributing those is now just an incredibly, incredibly easier than it was way back in the old days of 1997 or so. <laughs> so the second change we wanted to talk about is the spread of social. So if we just look at some of the kind of top players, we have Facebook was founded in 2004, LinkedIn, 2002, Twitter, 2006. So they were around when we started Tagoras, but pretty much still in their infancy. And then since we've been around, sites like Instagram and TikTok have been added. So Instagram, 2010, TikTok, 2016. And so, you know, what's happened over the past 15 years is that social media has become this deeply ingrained part of everyday life for billions of people globally. Now, admittedly, that hasn't been necessarily 100% a, a great thing. It's led to a lot of misinformation. It's contributed to mental health issues. Democracy issues, perhaps. Yes. But there's also been a lot of opportunities for meaningful connections, for fostering communities where skills and knowledge can be shared in ways that they, they couldn't be shared before social made it easy to interact, especially with folks who you might never meet in person, who might be on the other side of the globe. Yeah, and that's, that's had a huge impact on the learning business landscape. I mean, obviously, social learning pre-existed social media. We, we are social learners as, as human beings. Informal learning uh, preceded social media as well. We've always had the sort of water cooler learning that goes on in, in various forms through our lives. But what social media did was just to explode the potential um, for those things. And as you're saying, Salisa, the connections that you can then have are global. I mean, you can, you know, have that social learning, have that informal learning with people you would never have been able to do that with before. And learning businesses really have an ability now to reach learners in different ways than they ever could before. And I think that really still has not been truly, fully, deeply appreciated and capitalized on in the way that it should be. That's an area of, of growth going forward still for learning businesses. 
The third change we'll mention is the growth of mobile. So we've you know already talked about the spread of video, the growth of social, and the fact that those are often combined. That's all gone hand in hand with you know this widespread use of smartphones, the ever increasing speed and reliability of mobile communication networks. And so, you know, at this point, I think smartphones, tablets, I mean, they're so entrenched in our lives that it's actually hard for me to remember that the iPhone wasn't introduced until 2007. In fact, about a month or so after Tagoras was founded. I do vaguely recall that I had one of those Motorola flip phones at, at one point. And I had, I can't even remember what you call the little thing that uh, had like a stylus with it um, that you used as sort of your personal note taker or, or whatever. What were the, I can't remember what those was things were called. It wasn't a Blackberry. <laughs> it was something else that was out at that time. I'm going to have to go <laughs> look it up now. But, uh, you know, the iPhone came out and then uh, Palm Pilot. That's what it was. Palm it was a Pilot, Palm Pilot. Right? Yeah. I had a Palm Pilot back in the day. But I remember the, the iPhone came out and then roughly a year later, the App Store was launched. And, and really the rest is, as they say, history. I mean, most of us, now carry around a huge amount of computing power compared to you know what was possible in the even in the 80s, much less like the 50s or, or something like that. Just a huge amount of computing power, along with the ability to consume massive amounts of digital media, to play games, to interact with people around the world in, in myriad ways. And so the impact on the learning business landscape of this growth of mobile is that we have anytime, anywhere learning, it's feasible. It's not necessarily always been designed to, you know, the learning isn't always necessarily packaged as well as it can be. But the fact that people can pull out their phones and look something up or make use of the five minutes while they're waiting for a bus to actually engage in a learning experience. I mean, that's huge. And that's because of this growth of mobile. It also has facilitated the growth of informal learning, because, again, a lot of what people are doing on their mobile devices is not necessarily that formal, you know, six-week course, but it might be uh, connecting with someone on social media, asking a question, doing more of that informal, peer-based learning. And there's just a lot of access to learning opportunities that people who in the past didn't have that access now have, because maybe they never had a computer, maybe they never had, you know, a wired internet connection at their house, We've had a lot of leapfrogging folks who kind of skipped over some of the interim technology and went straight to having that mobile phone in their pocket. And that has opened up a lot of opportunity for those people. Yeah, I think particularly if you look at like what uh, what's happened with the e-learning across the continent of, of Africa, a lot of that has been driven by mobile devices as opposed to traditional um, computer networks because a lot of the traditional computer connectivity wasn't there or didn't come along as, as fast as it did in, in other parts of the world. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at agoras.com slash services. So we've talked about video, we've talked about uh, social, we've talked about mobile. Number four is what we're calling the SaaS explosion. And 
you know, software as a service or, or SaaS was certainly established well before uh, 2007. Salesforce, the company that really kind of put SaaS on the map, was founded in 1999, and we were actually Salesforce users at, uh, at our previous company. But it really took a while for the impact uh, of SaaS to, to be felt broadly. And I think that was particularly true in learning businesses. You know, I don't know if you remember this, Lisa, but back in our earliest learning management system selection projects, whether to host LMS software yourself or have the vendor host it was still a legitimate question. Oh, and people uh, invested some some blood, sweat, and tears in, in making that that choice there. Oh, yeah. And the IT teams were all, usually were adamant about wanting to, to host it themselves. And more than a few of our clients did choose to host the LMS software on their own servers, usually alongside their, their AMS or their CRM software. You know, I can't remember the last time that that happened. And most LMS companies don't even make that an option anymore. It's hard to find one that would actually make that an option. You know, and as SaaS has grown, the ability for platforms to communicate with each other across the web, across the internet, through standards-based application programming interfaces or APIs, that's also grown and it's made it much easier to leverage what typically gets called best of breed software to address specific business requirements, you know, rather than having one piece of software that's expected to do everything. And so when we think about the impact on the learning business landscape, I mean, the growth of SaaS means that for learning businesses, it's gotten dramatically easier and less costly to integrate key systems. You know, so you might have the integration between your learning management system and other platforms like a customer relationship management system or an association management system, a webinar platform, or even marketing automation systems that used to take a lot of coordination, a lot of back and forth, a lot of conversations. And now because of the APIs, because of SaaS, it's gotten just so much easier and so much less costly, so much faster to to handle those integrations. I think that the SaaS explosion has also driven the evolution of e-learning standards. SCORM was introduced in 2000. That's giving way maybe somewhat slowly, but it's giving way to XAPI or 10CAN, the Experience API, and other standards that really provide for handling data that's generated outside of a specific learning management system. And that has just helped, again, with the integration and knowing that if you take a SaaS approach, in general, you're going to be able to make the systems talk that you need to have talking and get data out of them in a usable way. Yeah, and of course, that's leading to things like experience, learning experience platforms where you can take some of that social, some of that video, some of that mobile experience that we were talking about earlier, and that stuff all becomes trackable even in informal situations that don't happen within the structure of a learning management system. And we haven't you know, sort of reaped the rewards of that revolution yet, I don't think, but that's that's coming. That's big news. So number five, I think we have to talk about you know the the, the cost, the effort that goes into creating e-learning and how that has changed <laughs> during the past 15 years. Yeah, and so we're calling this the e-learning cost cliff. And we don't have specific data, we haven't been able to track that down yet, that, that shows how the costs of creating online learning have dropped over time. But we can speak from our own firsthand experience and say that, you know, back in the mid-1990s when we were involved in this, you know, high quality e-learning courses could easily cost well over six figures. And 
that's just not true anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's still possible to definitely to spend quite a bit of money on, on highly interactive e-learning courses. Well, and I'm sure someone will take your six figures if you... Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, gladly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's become rare, I think, to see uh, e-learning courses surpass or even come close to the $50,000 per hour mark. I mean, when you combine the built-in tools and most off-the-shelf e-learning authoring packages uh, and course platforms with what is now you know, possible to do with video, it's relatively easy to produce an hour of reasonably high quality e-learning content for, for well under $10,000 an hour. And you know, depending on who you talk to, some people will tell you that definitely way, way below $10,000 an hour. I mean, and I know there, there are going to be professional instructional design, designers and developers out there who are going to object to that assessment and uh, say the figure is much higher. But it's just undeniable that the drop in cost has dramatically changed the e-learning landscape. And so when we think about the impact, I mean, this huge drop in costs is really one of the main factors fueling the growth of e-learning and the ability of more learning businesses to provide e-learning. It's also one of the main factors that has made it possible for organizations to pivot their education and events online. So when you think about the pandemic hitting kind of in full force in the U.S. in March 2020, all these organizations had to pivot really quickly. And because of the reduced costs, they were able to do that. Yeah. Could you, could you imagine mid-1990s, the pandemic comes along, you have to move everything online. It would have been an utter disaster. I just don't know what, what would have even happened then. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that we also have to take this drop in costs. There's a positive side that it makes it more affordable for learning businesses to put out content. The reduced costs also are a reduced barrier, which means that more people can produce e-learning. You know, you don't necessarily have to have a big budget or specialized skills to create e-learning. And so that means that there's been some pretty poor quality e-learning put out. An understatement in many cases. <laughs> and even when it's not poor quality, it's just meant that there's more competition mm-hmm. across the board in, in many markets because of that, just reducing the barriers so that folks, you know, solo entrepreneurs, for example, who would not have been able on their own to produce e-learning in the past can now suddenly kind of enter and be a viable option for for learners. Yeah, you know, and, and speaking of those lower costs and those lower barriers of entry, barriers to entry, that leads us to number six, because really all of the factors that we've been talking about here so far have contributed to the emergence of what typically gets referred to these days as the creator economy. And that's that's our number six, the creator economy, which is you know, basically a technology-enabled business environment in which individual creators or very small groups of creators are able to generate revenue from their content. And that content may include everything from social media posts to on-demand and live stream videos to podcasts to ebooks to, of course, online courses and much more. And, you know, while much of this content is purely intended to be entertaining, um, and, and a lot of it really is entertaining. We uh, often get shown videos by my son that, that you can understand why these people are getting millions of followers, definitely. But a large percentage of it, maybe even the majority of it, is actually educational in nature. And so the impact on the learning business landscape of this creator economy is very similar to what we were talking about with the e-learning cost cliff. I mean, what this means is that you have more competition, you have more content, 
you have the rise of these solo edupreneurs, you know, so you can have that YouTuber, you know, singular YouTuber who's out there, you know, making a good living producing content because of something like the creator economy. And this, of course, is the kind of segment of the learning business landscape that we really focus on in our Learning Revolution channel, which is kind of a, a sibling site to leading learning where we provide resources for experts who want to um, take advantage of this creator economy, want to be able to monetize their expertise by providing learning experiences to their audiences. So the seventh change we'll talk about is, well, Jeff, you dubbed this the algorithm data dance. I yeah, like had to give it sort of a, a sexy title heading there or whatever. <laughs> but uh you know, I mean, largely be because of the proliferation of software and connectivity across the internet, the type of things we've been talking about already, there's been a tremendous surge in the amount of data we generate. You know, when we go online and do all these things, we're creating data as we do that. But, you know, more importantly, there's been a, a surge in the amount of data that we're actually able to, to capture and analyze as a part of that. And then at the same time, we've had major advances in machine learning, in artificial intelligence, and other algorithm-driven forms of computing. So these two topics, you know, data and, and algorithms, we could easily talk about those separately. They would merit that. But it, we feel like it's really in combination that they have the most power and they've had the most impact. I mean, machine learning and artificial intelligence give us the power to harness and make use of all the data we generate. And then in the process, they continue to generate and learn from the, the new data that uh, is created. And of course, there are all sorts of potential issues with this that uh, we as a society uh, are wrestling with and will be wrestling with for years to come from privacy concerns to concerns about biases and, and algorithms. But even so, the, the potential to effectively process, analyze, and take action based on very large sets of data just really has enormous potential for helping us to address huge issues like climate change and, and global pandemics, for example, and, and for enabling machines to do work that humans simply can't do or, or don't want to do. And so when we think about the impact on the learning business landscape of the algorithm data dance, I mean, the, the headline of the impact is personalization. Yeah. You know, a major upside for learning businesses is that if you have the right data and you have these algorithms using that data, you can then offer highly personalized learning experiences that really help individual learners with their individual learning needs. Now, there are potential downsides. You already mentioned uh, some of them, Jeff, you know, privacy and bias issues. But I think one of the other downsides is that you know, this algorithm plus data combination is responsible for what could be called the Amazon effect. Yeah. And this is, you know, it may not be so much a downside as just a, a challenge or a, an opportunity for learning businesses. But we hear again and again, when we go in and we're involved with technology selection these days, that what they want out of a platform is what Amazon does, which is basically personalizes the experience to every shopper. When you get there, you know, your recommended things, they reflect what you've done before and sort of, you know, take you down a channel towards purchasing the things that, uh, that you want to purchase, or maybe you never knew you wanted to purchase. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, and learning experiences, you know, we're often looking for the same sort of thing and 
personalization. We want to we want to recommend to people the things we have in our catalog that are going to appeal to them, that are going to guide them down a personalized learning path. And the challenge right now is that, you know, the, the Amazon effect has created expectations that a lot of learning businesses just can't live up to at this point. And so that, I think that's going to be a challenge for years to come. So the eighth change that we'll mention is the extension of reality. And it's easy to think, okay, metaverse, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. But if you think back, Second Life was introduced in 2003. And people talked about that as a metaverse at the time. Yeah. And, you know, efforts in virtual and extended reality actually date back to the, the 1950s. But Still, it's pretty hard to argue that any of those earlier efforts, even Second Life, were very satisfying. I mean, I can remember trying to move around Second Life, and it was it was a little awkward. Uh, it wasn't really until advances like Oculus Rift, the o- Oculus Rift headset, came along in, in 2010 that truly immersive virtual reality experiences started to seem like they could be a reality. And of course, Facebook stepped in and acquired Oculus in, in 2014, which is sort of the stepping stone to meta and the, the metaverse. Google introduced Google Cardboard, which is basically a, a no-cost virtual reality headset in 2015. But virtual reality still is is not really gone mainstream. I mean, that said, it's definitely making significant progress and and the tools and skills needed for creating VR experiences are becoming much cheaper and, and easier to use. Well, yeah, and you have e-learning authoring tools like Adobe Captivate, Articulate Storyline, Lectora. These kinds of tools are starting to incorporate options for creating augmented reality and virtual reality experiences. And as those mature and people get more familiar with them, you you can imagine how this is going to lead towards, like we talked about the e-learning cost cliff. I think we're going to see the the costs of XR and VR and AR come down and people are hopefully going to be finding meaningful ways to apply that to learning experiences. Yeah, I suspect that, you know, we're going to reach a tipping point on that more rapidly than than people realize, and suddenly we're going to wake up one day and just be aware that there there is virtual reality and uh, other forms of extended reality going on all around us. And of course, the impact on the, or the potential impact on on learning businesses is huge. I mean, we know that practice and being able to apply new knowledge and skills in context are are really key to more effective learning. And extended reality provides opportunities for immersion and for real-time application that, you know, would often be risky or or expensive or, or simply not possible in, quote, real life. So number nine, the call of alternative credentials. And, you know, when we think about so many of the changes that were being discussed here, a lot of what's underlying that is is some of the shift in the nature of work and what it means to be prepared and stay prepared for gainful employment. And, you know, that shift is one of the key factors that has driven interest in alternative credentials. Another factor is that there's a lot of criticism about the cost of traditional higher education, you know, four to six years and, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars to come out with your, you know, undergraduate degree. And then even when you have that and you've spent that time and money, there's a lot of doubt and a lot of actually data that 
students coming out with that aren't actually all that well prepared for work. Yeah. And, you know, of course, credentials like certifications and certificates have been around for a long time. They're kind of mainstays uh, with a, a lot of the learning businesses we work with, but there's now rising interest in them as approaches that do, in fact, require less time and and cost um, significantly less than traditional degree programs. And it's interesting that Google, for example, has introduced a portfolio of certificate programs designed to get potential job candidates up to speed quickly to meet the needs of the the technology industry, and not just for Google itself, you know, but for the the entire industry. These are valuable to in, employers in that world. And traditional certificates and you know designations that that go along with those, they're not the only way that a learner can signal that they have, you know, specific skills and knowledge. In September of 2011, the Mozilla Open Badges initiative was launched. And just since that launch, you know, digital badges have evolved pretty rapidly and they've become an important part of the credentialing landscape at this point in time. Yeah. And I think they're, they're another phenomenon concept that there's still a lot of growth potential. And um, I think most learning businesses have not sort of fully come to grips with what digital badging can can do for them and you know haven't fully put it into practice across their portfolio so we expect to continue to see significant growth with badges well because they have that kind of built-in ability to verify in real time that someone actually does hold that credential that it's you know still valid and and accurate and sometimes depending on how the digital badge is structured you might also be able to actually see some work product that the learner did to earn that digital badge. Yeah, and of course, blockchain factors into all of this. And, we, you know, that's something we probably have not or are not going to say quite enough about um, in this episode. But when you're in the world of credentialing, something like blockchain, where you have this verifiable, trackable path of the people go through to, to acquire their skills and knowledge, that's very, very powerful. And again, it's one of those areas where, with respect to digital badging and other forms of credentialing, there's still a lot of growth and evolution that's going to be able to take place in the learning business world. And so when we think about the impact on learning businesses of this call of alternative credentials, you know, it, it really has to do with the fact that credentials are valued. From our earliest days of doing research at Tagoras, we know that learning experiences that are associated with a meaningful and valued credential, they attract the highest level of demand. You know, that's what learners want. They're going to opt for that rather than the yeah, alternative. Yeah. Um, and so when you have folks already sort of gravitating towards a learning experience that comes with a credential, and then you have the current demands for these alternative forms of credentialing, it just, there's just huge opportunity for learning businesses here to really think about what are we offering and then how do we provide our learners with that symbol, that designation that they really do have the skills or knowledge that they say they have. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about credentialing in general and some about alternative credentialing a lot lately. We'll definitely be sure to, to link to some of those episodes and resources. And, you know, the whole idea of driving demand, which credentials can certainly do, that's one of the reasons they're very valuable in, in the business context of learning, makes me think of our, our number 10 item here, um, which uh, is really all about demand, and that's the maturing of marketing. And really, you know, so many of the changes discussed here have had an, an impact on the world of marketing. And by extension, those changes have impacted learning businesses. I mean, marketing today 
it's simply not the game it was back in the the Mad Men days. I mean, no. I think people think of, you know, presentations and smoky rooms and let's come up with the slickest advertising we can. That's that's not the deal anymore. Marketers now have to have a deep understanding of how social networks and search engines work and then how to, to leverage them through approaches like content marketing and, and, you know, other ways to connect with users. And marketers today need to understand much more deeply than their predecessors the subtleties of human psychology, of, of influence and persuasion, and how to provide for a user experience and a customer journey that's going to lead to initial conversion of prospects into customers and then retain those customers over time. Yeah, I'd say in short, it's just it's a much, much more sophisticated practice than it was in the past. And as a result, you know, we've seen the rise of the chief marketing officer in the corporate world. I mean, this is a position that now is equal to or, or even outranks the top sales position. And people may be thinking, okay, marketing is, is evolved. What does that have to do with the learning business landscape? What's the impact there? Well, the evolution of marketing impacts learning businesses in at least two ways. I mean, first, as marketers become better and better at what they do, Organizations that don't have good marketing resources are going to find it harder and harder to compete. And then second, I mean, as we've said again and again and again and again, <laughs> marketing has a lot in common with education. I mean, both are fundamentally about creating behavior change. And as a result, you know, much of the skills and knowledge that marketers have developed is equally applicable to educators and trends in the world of marketing are very often a bellwether for changes in the learning business landscape. And I'll note too that, you know, with something like content marketing, so much of marketing has become educational. It's about delivering educational value as a way to establish a product's value, a service's value, a company's value with customers to then bring them into uh, that customer journey and that user experience that's going to convert them into a long-term customer. The 11th change that we want to talk about is what we're calling the leap in learning science. And I would say that, you know, interesting things have happened pretty much every year of our 15 year history. But for us, 2014 stands out. Yeah, that year saw the publication of Make It Stick by Henry Rediger, Mark McDaniel and Peter C. Brown. Rodiger. Rodiger. I'm sorry, I always get that name. And, and Peter's been on the podcast. We'll, we'll be sure to, to link to that. So it saw the publication of Make It Stick and also of How We Learn by Benedict Carey, who's a very popular uh, New York Times science writer. Those were two very popular books that focused on how human beings learn most effectively. Well, in 2014 is also the year that Barb Oakley launched her massive open online course, her MOOC called Learning How to Learn that was on that is still on Coursera. And it's at this point enrolled more than 3.2 million learners. And of course, I had the opportunity to talk with Barb Oakley for the podcast. So we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes for this episode. But you know, when you think about these books, you think about that MOOC and how many millions of learners have taken it, you know, it just seems like Learning science has, has hit the big time. Definitely. And I'm, and that number has grown because I can't remember what it was when you talked to her, but it was well below 3.2 million at that point. So it, it continues <laughs> Absolutely. To, to go. And, you know, of course, in many ways, this was really the culmination of work that started decades before with uh, people like Ruth Colvin Clark and, and Richard, uh, is it Mayer or Meyer? I always forget Mayer. that one. <laughs> Mayer. They published the first edition of their classic 
e-learning and the science of instruction in 2002. And it wasn't like learning hadn't been studied, you know, even before that, but wider dissemination of knowledge about learning and popular interest in it has really only taken off, in, in, in my opinion, in the past decade or so. When I had the opportunity to talk with Ruth Colvin-Clark on the podcast, so we'll make sure to include that in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, e-learning had been studied, the science of instruction had been studied, but part of what someone like Ruth and Richard are doing is like they're translating mm-hmm. these studies, they're pulling together. It's a you know meta study where they're looking at cross different data points to really sort of see what is effective and then what can we take from that so that we can build ever more effective learning. And I think part of what's also driven the popularity or the growing uh, awareness of of learning science is that you have folks like Dan Pink and you have events like TED, and that's just kind of tuned us all into social and behavioral science type topics. Um, Those have become more popular and they, of course, sit there nicely beside learning science. And we've also had significant gains in fields like neuroscience, you know, where we can now clearly see what's actually happening because of better imaging techniques, what's happening in the brain as we learn. And then, you know, I think we've also just seen broader appreciation for lifelong learning that's kind of accompanied that shift in the world of work that we've talked about. I think that's also had an influence on this. You know, whatever the cause is, it seems clear that many people know much more now about how learning actually works than they did 15 years ago. And I think the implication, the impact for learning businesses is probably pretty self-evident. It just, you know, if as people who develop and delivering learning experiences, if we have a better understanding of how learning works, we're going to be able to create better learning experiences. And if the learners who participate in what we offer, if they have that same understanding, they're going to be able to get that much more out of those learning experiences as well. So it's just a tremendous asset for both the learning business and the learner. So we need to continue our efforts to make sure that learning business professionals know about learning science and that the and learners have an appreciation, even if it's unconscious, of learning science and how they can be better learners. But of course, you know, for people to know about those things, they have to be paying attention. And that's an issue. Because our 12th change that we want to highlight is what we're calling the attention crisis. And so when you take some of the things we've already talked about, you know, dropping costs, quantity of content. So you have greater content, lower cost. That means there's just that much more out there. And that then makes it that much harder to first gain and then maintain learners' attention. And then once you get that attention, you got to keep it so that you can form meaningful relationships. And that is all kind of working against this highly transactional world that we're living in that really seems to prefer convenience and these frictionless exchanges, as they're called. And of course, so much is free now, too. I mean, we've talked about cost drops, but, you know, in terms of stuff getting put up on the web for people to access, I mean, not just video, but full-blown courses and, you know, all sorts of topics are available out there. The Barb Oakley MOOC. The Barb Oakley MOOC, yeah. You know, so, you know, when you're out there competing for learners' attention, you're competing directly with, with competitors, but you're also competing with all this other content out there that could be pulling them in in, in other directions. And, you know, how do you manage to do that? And then with COVID, we've seen life expectancy drop for the first time in decades. And so I think there's a kind of renewed, palpable, justified sense that time is short. People are very busy. 
And that's a huge barrier to learning because now they have to spend more of their limited, precious time than ever before choosing among among all these options because there are so many more options than ever before. Yeah. So the impact here, and this may be another one where it's self-evident, but it's definitely worth talking about. I mean, there's a popular meme out there that we not all now have the attention span of a goldfish. And that, that that's not really true. That's been debunked. But it's it's clear that we do have to take into account the many demands that learners have on their attention. And that applies not only to the delivery of learning experiences, but also to the marketing of learning experiences. In fact, it may be even more important there in, in many ways. You know, if we can't effectively capture attention and then build that into interest and motivation to take action, then we're not going to get prospects to enroll in, much less engage with the learning experiences we offer. The 13th change is what we're calling the rise of big learning. So there have historically been businesses um, like, say, the teaching company, which is now called the Great Courses or the Learning Annex that have marketed courses and seminars to adult learners. So that's been out there before. We've had, you know, learning businesses that we like to talk about. But the maturing of the Internet and of digital technologies has really just created a a whole new level of opportunity that, that we're characterizing as big learning. And so, you know, we've seen the emergence of companies like Udemy, and that was in 2010, they, they started, Masterclass started in 2015. We've seen the emergence of massive open online course providers like edX and Coursera, they both came along in 2012. And we have bootcamp providers like Code Academy that started in 2011. And then you can also include in this list lynda.com. That's now LinkedIn Learning. Lynda was acquired in 2015 for $1.5 billion. That $1.5 billion, I think, was a little like the $1.65 billion acquisition of YouTube. You, you sort of had to perk up and say, hmm, there's, a, there's definitely something <laughs> going on here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the great courses, you know, even that's now primarily online and it's rebranded its streaming offerings as Wondrium, you know, and this is just scratching the surface. These are just kind of the names that occurred to us as we were talking about that. But in general, it seems clear that learning has become big business. Yeah. And we do have a post and, and I think we did an episode too on um, learning from big learning, some some lessons that can be extracted from that. So we'll be sure to, to link to that. But you know, just right here, as far as the impact on le the learning business landscape goes, big learning is obviously a, a source of competition. We just talked about attention. So, you know, whether it's direct competition or indirect competition, it's out there and could be claiming the attention of your prospective learners. And then perhaps more importantly, the big learning businesses are really changing the expectations and standards for online learning experiences. Yeah, they're driving that bar ever higher. So those learner expectations are going up. The penultimate change we want to talk about is what we're calling the second migration. And it's unfortunate that tragedy is often the catalyst for, for major change. And now has certainly been the case in the world of online learning. So if we look back, one of the first big migrations that pushed folks online came in the wake of 9-11. That's when people were afraid to travel and travel with the creation of TSA started to become much less enjoyable. 
And so at that point, you know, webinars in particular um, surged. I think I think that's when webinars really took off after that tragedy. And we don't have hard data, but the the recent COVID pandemic we think likely had an even more dramatic impact. You know, pretty much all learning businesses were forced to move their events and educational programming online. And that included businesses who had previously resisted making virtual a substantial part of their business or a part of their business at all. And at the same time, people who may have been resistant to e-learning and online events in the past, or who maybe participated in them only sporadically, they were pretty much forced online. And the impact on learning businesses is that, of course, many learning businesses were forced to do what they arguably should have done before the pandemic, that is, move a substantial part of their offerings online. And then, you know, the potential challenges are that a lot of what was moved online was not of high quality. You know, it was a speed thing. We had to get stuff out there. And so quality was suffered a bit sometimes. And so where we are now is that a lot of what got moved online probably needs to be re-examined as the pandemic wanes. As we were just talking about those learner expectations because of, you know, big learning expectations are higher now. And so, you know, I think more people have had a chance to experience online learning and online events. And so they have a clear idea of what they want from them, what they want that experience to be. And of course, you know, some of them have that better understanding of what makes for effective learning that we talked about with the leap in learning science. So that's that's informing expectations as well. And also there's just the fact, and this leads to number 15 in our list, that lifelong learning has become mainstream. And so we're calling this the, the mainstreaming of lifelong learning. So as many of the, the previous points suggest, the concept of lifelong learning has really gone mainstream. And that's in combination uh, with tightly related buzz terms like upskilling and reskilling that you're often hearing used in combination or as a substitute even for lifelong learning. Well, and one example of this is back in 2017, and it caught R.I. back then, but the venerable business publication, The Economist, ran a special report with the headline, Lifelong Learning is Becoming an Economic Imperative. Yeah, we scratched our head and said, hmm, becoming? I'm not sure it's becoming a life. I think we, we thought it already was <laughs> an economic imperative at that point. But what was really more important was that a major global publication saw the need to highlight lifelong learning as a major societal issue. And you also now regularly see, you know, for example, columnists in major media outlets like New York Times or Wall Street Journal or some of the big uh, uh, magazines argue for the critical importance of lifelong learning in all of its various forms. And so the impact on the learning business landscape is that this perceived value of what learning businesses provide and the role that learning businesses provide in society that value has never been higher. And it's important though, that leaders of learning businesses really embrace and take advantage of this shift, this, this new, newish focus on the importance of lifelong learning. And as we've noted, there are some players in the learning business landscape who aren't really embracing this moment, taking this advantage of the value of lifelong learning, because there's actually some resistance to even owning the term lifelong learning. You know, they prefer maybe to talk about continuing education and professional development. 
But in our books, of course, those are just flavors of lifelong learning. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a carpe diem sort of moment. You know, if you're in the learning business, if learning is a part of your business, like it is, for example, for uh, most trade and, and professional associations, the opportunity to, to step up, to be visible as an organization, as a business that's providing value, not only to your members and customers, but to society as a whole. This is the moment and leaders of those businesses really need to, to seize it and give their stakeholders that sense of vision for what they're actually doing. So those are the 15 changes that we've seen in the learning business landscape over the past 15 years. For a recap of the 15 changes we talked about, be sure to check out the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 309. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 309, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we hope you will subscribe if you haven't yet. We appreciate subscription numbers because they give us some visibility into the impact of the podcast. And we'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast, especially if you enjoy the show. Salise and I personally appreciate reviews and ratings, and they help the podcasts show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. In the show notes at leadinglearning.com slash episode 309, you'll find links to connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Mm-hmm.